Today's episode is brought to you by Jorvik Viking Centre and the annual Jorvik Viking Festival, which takes place in York, UK. As many of you know, the festival will be happening this year of 2019 in only a few weeks, and I encourage you all to follow the link in the description below for more information. I, of course, will be attending the festival, touring Jorvik Viking Centre, and meeting up with some old friends across the pond. One thing that really excites me about my upcoming trip to York is the ability to tour the Viking Center, which is a totally immersive historical experience, whereas you actually ride through a recreation of Viking Age York. Again, please be sure to follow the link in the description for more information. I hope to see you all at the Jorvik Viking Festival in just a few weeks. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today I'm joined by Dr. Peter Adiman, British archaeologist and original director of York Archaeological Trust, the organization that led the Coppergate dig of 1976 to 1981. Hello, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me today. Delighted. During the Viking Age, the city of York in the United Kingdom was an important trading center, and much of the evidence for this was excavated during the Coppergate dig. But before we get into the Coppergate dig and the exciting finds that were excavated during that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Viking history of York? I mean, first and foremost, when and why did the Vikings come to York? Well, York was, uh, I suppose, the main town, in, as far as there were towns in those days, in the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria. That is the area of uh, England that's uh, north of the River Humber and in the eastern side of the, co uh, the country. Uh, York had been here for a very long time. It was founded by the Romans as a legionary fortress and it became a colonial capital. And uh, we have a, a wonderful source that actually describes it not very far from the date when the Vikings first came here. There was a, a, a monastery here by that time and it had a great scholar called Alcuin and he was headhunted by uh, Charlemagne, went off to uh, the continents to work there, and he looked back on his old town with some regret and wrote a poem about it, and this is how it goes. It was a Roman army. No, it starts. My heart is set to praise my home and briefly tell the ancient cradling of its famed story through the charms of verse. It was a Roman army built it first, high-walled and towered, a mighty stronghold for our governors, an empire's pride and terror to its foes. It was a merchant town by land and sea where the sailor goes to throw his rope ashore and stay to rest. The city is watered by the fish-rich ooze, flows through flowery plains on every side, and hills and uh, pastures beautify the earth and make a lovely dwelling place which soon would fill it full of men. 
And in fact, after the Roman period, it went into decline. But by Alcuin's time, it had recovered. There was a, a population center here, a trading center, uh, and a monastery and a center of culture. And so it was exactly the sort of place that was the uh, essential place to hold if you were in, interested in the conquest of Northumbria. And the Vikings uh, did just that. They moved in on um, All Saints Day, uh, 866. Uh, when everybody, I suppose, was celebrating All Faints Day. And luckily for them, uh, two local kings were having a fight about who should be king. Uh, they s were attacked again the next year by the, the locals who got themselves organized at last. Uh, the locals lost, and the Vikings held on to York, which they renamed Jorvik, not Ibarakum, as the Romans had, had it, or Jorvik, as the Anglo-Saxons called it, but Jorvik. And it became the main town of a kingdom based on Jorvik. It's the kingdom based on the army of Jorvik. So a great place to have already a trading center, already a big defended Roman center, uh, and uh, the focus of a major Anglo-Saxon kingdom. So short, a long answer to a short question. Mm. Yeah. Well, the Coppergate dig was certainly a massive day for Really, the study of archaeology, I read something like 40,000 archaeological contexts were discovered. But what prompted the dig, which I know you were very much involved in? And how did you know that there would be items from the Viking Age where you were digging? Well, York is a thriving modern city. Uh, and at that time, it was uh, engaged on a major development program, which large um, new sites were being turned into, in this case, a shopping uh, mall. Uh, all those are very destructive of the archaeology that lives, lies below the ground. And I was uh, brought in in the early 70s to set up a team that could uh, do archaeological rescue, as we used to call it in those days, before these developments. Well, there was a huge one planned for uh, Coppergate. Uh, the street name immediately suggested that uh, Vikings, Gatan, is the uh, uh, Scandinavian word for street, and this was the cop. Copper Gate or the Cooper Street or the Cupmaker cup Street. Uh, and also over the centuries, odd things have been found as new developments took place, which are, there was plenty of Viking stuff there. And particularly important that it was well preserved because of the wet conditions in the ground in York. We have a sort of impervious substrate of clay and, and uh, anything that gets thrown down there doesn't rot. It just uh, gets wet and uh, Rather like a peat bog, it gets preserved. So, yes, this was a, a really choice site. And we realized it was a huge opportunity with this massive development coming up and uh, initially tested it. Uh, yes, the stuff was there. In fact, the first test that we did under the floors of some deep cellars there went straight into Viking Age buildings that were standing six feet high, made of timber. Wow. And so there was a huge fundraising campaign. We actually got the Prince of Wales involved to head up the uh, fundraising campaign. And he got uh, his colleagues from uh, Norway and Sweden, uh, Denmark and Iceland to join in. And so uh, a, a big campaign was launched. Uh, it was actually uh, a jolly good thing. We, we had that kind of uh, ambition because the site was extraordinarily rich. Things were preserved that had really never been found in Britain, certainly before. That's so remarkable. But, you know, when you first started digging, uh, you mentioned, you know, finding some, some buildings that um, stood, you know, many feet high. But what were those first sort of insights um, 
for for you archaeologists when you first started digging? What were some of the the first items that that you came to discover that represented life during the Viking Age? Well, uh, in addition to the buildings, um, everything the Vikings left around uh, was there, uh, including obviously the artifacts they used, uh, including all the rubbish they chucked out the back door, so rotten vegetables and uh, seeds and so forth. Even the little insects that crawled around in these rather um, humid and unpleasant sort of damp conditions were preserved. I remember once uh, seeing a complete beehive that had somehow fallen over and got squashed, full of bees, which were still recognizable. So just about anything that you care to mention, we've probably got some evidence for it from this quite extraordinarily well-preserved organic heap, as it were, of remains from not just one phase of the Viking Age, but uh, right from the beginning of the reorganization of Anglo-Saxon York by the, the Vikings in the uh, in the 9th century, and then their systematic redevelopment of the place as a huge um, trading center in, in the 10th. Now, because of your findings and, and all of the items that were excavated, what did you learn about Viking Age York, and, and really what was life like for the people living there? Well, uh, I think the most startling thing I found was that the uh, area was developed by the Vikings and that we weren't right in the middle of the Roman town in Coppergate, just outside that area. But uh, the area seems to have been laid out with the street lines at that time. And then the properties on which uh, the, the, the Scandinavians were going to develop uh, were laid out. Uh, and those boundaries have survived right through to the present day. And so the four or five buildings that were demolished to allow us onto this site were standing exactly over the sites of the similar buildings of a thousand years before. And that, by implication, suggests that quite a lot of the centre of York, which has that very typical layout, is actually a bit of Viking Age town planning. So the first thing I, I felt at the end of the uh, uh, um, operation was that we were looking at the work of an extremely good Scandinavian period town planner. Uh, that's also uh, true in terms of the construction of the buildings. Some of them were extremely well-designed and well-organized, beautifully carried out. And you're looking there at very skillful people. Uh, we don't know their names, but we do know that they were extremely good carpenters. That sort of thing strikes me as a, amongst the most exciting things that you can find. Obviously, artifacts themselves, uh, any one of them might be uh, <laughs> um, subject of a, of a talk. I remember one that really went around the world. We found a sock. It was a woolen sock. Uh, now, this is before knitting was introduced into Western Europe. And so it was made by a, a very curious method that the Danes still quite enjoy doing, called nerl binding. It's uh, sewing little loops together, looped sewing. But it makes a perfectly good sock when you're finished. And this one clearly been worn because its heel was out and its toe was out, as uh, sometimes happens these days in <laughs> socks. Uh, I think I've got one at the moment that's exactly the same kind of wear. Uh, and uh, that just took the imagination not only of the diggers there, but also of the, you know, the local community and then the press and uh, the TV and so on. And my, my, my finest hour was when somebody sent me a cutting from the Wollongong Times, which I think is something in Australia, isn't it? In which a, a lady so inspired by this Viking sock had written an ode to the Viking sock. So, yeah, it went around the world as an amazing series of discoveries. Yeah. 
Yeah, no doubt. Well, out of all of the the findings and, and items that were brought up from the dig, do you have a favorite? Um, well, I, I, the most important thing that came out actually came out after the dig. You know, you dig for five and a half years. Eventually, you've got to hand over the site to the developers, and we've done that. Uh, but while the development was going on, we did have a team there uh, for the bits that we hadn't dug, just watching what was going on. And one of my colleagues one day um, saw something which looked a bit like a rather muddy rugby ball. We have this game with sort of oval-shaped ball, rather like American football. It wasn't a, a rugby ball at all. It was a squashed uh, Anglo-Saxon helmet. And it turned out to be the, the famous, now famous, Coppergate helmet, the best preserved, I suspect, uh, Anglo-Saxon helmet uh, in, in, in the world. Beautifully decorated, with a wonderful inscription uh, in Latin on it. In nomine, domine nostri, Jesu Christu, Sanctus Spiritus, Deus et Omnibus, Decamus, Amen, uh, which is a little prayer for whoever's wearing it. And it mentioned a person called Osheri. Now, it wasn't Viking, but it was found in the Viking pit. So it was possibly something the Vikings had raided, kept as a, a souvenir. It was about 100 years old when it was dumped. And uh, it's an absolutely superb thing. So, yes, that really was an eye-opener. But uh, you said uh, something like 40,000 contacts. I think you mean 40,000 objects. Uh, archaeologists have these things called contacts, which is of bits of earth that uh, um, perhaps are in a rubbish pit or have been packed around a post hole or whatever it is. There are contacts, and they very often have objects in them. There were 40,000 objects. And the thing that really struck me, you know, we hear all about Vikings and their uh, violent habits and so on, but out of the, oh, it's just the 39,800, I think, we found, only five had anything to do with militarism. I think there was a sword hilt and one or two um, weapon-like knives and things. So what we were looking at in the excavations at Coppergate was quite a different side of Viking life uh, to the one that uh, is a popular image. We were looking at extremely good town planners, extremely good uh, um, property developers, extremely good tradesmen, uh, craftsmen, uh, artists, and uh, people who clearly had a, a very efficient uh, everyday life, a very uh, enjoyable everyday life, and a very prosperous one. So um, that's the way in which archaeology corrects the historical images that you perhaps get from the, the, the written sources. After all, at that time, the uh, sources were being written down by the English who were suffering Viking attacks, not by the Vikings themselves who and so they were illiterate, but they didn't leave us a great literature, and they didn't leave us a good press for themselves. Mm. That's that's so fascinating. Um, and you mentioned the Coppergate helmet, uh, which was sort of of the Anglo-Saxon nature. And I'm curious as to how this came up in the excavation. But during the the Viking Age, when the, when the Vikings lived in York, of course, um, how did they get on with the Anglo-Saxons who um, lived there as well? And was there sort of this um, merging of, of cultures that you saw between the, the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons during, during your dig? Well, yes, I suppose uh, when you have a, a reasonable population descending on a place, they eventually intermarry. And, and in fact, archaeologists tend to talk not about Viking York, but about Anglo-Scandinavian York, because you find, um, for instance, inscriptions that show that uh, one family uh, had one child with a Viking name and one child with an Anglo-Saxon name. 
and you sort of guess, well, one of those parents was an Anglo-Saxon and one was uh, and somebody from Scandinavia. Uh, and certainly uh, there was a uh, movement quite soon after the first attacks to settle. Uh, I think the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says Halfdan divided the army and uh, his half of it was engaged in ploughing and making a living for themselves. And they uh, left their mark around the countryside in, in Yorkshire in place names, enormous numbers of Scandinavian place names. Um, they're, in fact, integrating themselves in the local society and becoming, a, as you say, an Anglo-Scandinavian population. And interestingly enough, in the 11th century, when we had further trouble from invaders, the, the Normans, um, attacks were, were made from Scandinavia and they focused on, on, on York. Uh, against the Normans, because uh, I suspect the Scandinavians knew they had a sympathetic population around here with uh, with Scandinavian ancestry, you know, quite common. Um, the attacks eventually didn't work. Uh, William the Conqueror managed to beat them off, and we have castles to prove it here, and uh, a different kind of story. But uh, it very much was eventually, as you say, uh, an integrated population, intermarried, no doubt, with the local girls and so on. And uh, um, it became something that was quite distinctive and quite different from those other parts of England that didn't actually suffer uh, back in conquest. Now, my understanding is that York was very much a trading center, one might say, during the Viking Age. Is this notion supported by the various items pertaining to uh, merchants in in trade or, or even foreign objects found during the excavation? Yes, the... the uh, Artifacts found, some of them are made locally. And in fact, we found um, workshops where, uh, for example, textiles were produced locally. But amongst the textiles that were preserved in these extraordinary conditions were things like silk. Now, we really don't have many mulberry trees in the Vale of York and silkworms. Uh, If you're looking for silk, it's about 6,000 miles away, the nearest uh, source, and that's perhaps Byzantium at the time, or it might even be 15,000 miles away in China. And uh, things like that turned up in the excavation. There was uh, a shell. It was Cyperia pantherina. You may not know about that, but it's a sort of uh, suggestively shaped uh, shell that people collect because uh, it might bring them uh, luck in love, as it were. Uh, And the nearest ones come from the Red Sea. Uh, There are coins that were minted in Samarkand. Samarkand. And traded through Russia, no doubt, through uh, what's now Russia, through um, Scandinavia, and brought to um, to York because uh, the Vikings used coins, but they used it as a as a, a, a weight really of silver rather than a particular denomination that you could uh, use in the way that we use it nowadays. And so these coins came in in the um, course of trade uh, and various other objects too. There are things from Norway, things like uh, lovely whetstones. There's a, a particular kind of schist there, which makes a fantastic um, whetstone to sharpen your knives. You've got lots of those. Uh, bits of uh, lava, lava from the Rhineland, because that particular lava is extremely good for making grind, grinding stones for grinding corn. And um, things from Shetland, uh, up the north of, uh, of the British Isles, um, soapstone, which you can carve very easily. And they were making bowls, stone bowls out of that. We have bits of soapstone bowl. 
So the stuff from um, as far away as, as Samarkand, the stuff from the Mediterranean, uh, the stuff from Scandinavia, the stuff from various parts of the British Isles, and of course the stuff manufactured locally as well. Quite an extraordinary range of material showing the well, the vibrancy of uh, Viking Age trade, but also the importance of York as a focus for it in the British Isles. Now, in terms of the layout of the town during the Viking Age, I mean, if you and I were to, you know, sit in a time machine hovering above the city of, of York during the Viking Age, what would that look like? Was, would there have been, um, you know, uh, Roman roads and buildings still in use and still in operation, or what were what was sort of the the landscape of the town like? Yes, well, the, certainly it would have been Roman roads in use, and uh, uh, in fact, we still have Roman walls from the Roman legionary fortress standing to full height. One of the corner towers is there, virtually to full height, and so we can see it today. I'm sure Alcuin was standing outside it when he wrote that great poem, and uh, we can see exactly what he saw. There are other areas where the town has developed across that and the walls have gone. And I think uh, that process probably started in the Viking Age uh, as um, the Roman fortress was not absolutely ideally sited for trade. And the focus of uh, what we've been working on in um, the, the Viking parts of York is much closer to the riverside where there's good moorings or would have been good moorings in those days. And of course, the trade uh, um, was international, and therefore it was maritime, and uh, that would make um, much more sense. So, yeah, there'd be uh, Roman, re- remains of the Ro- Roman fortress, and no doubt that was utilized in defense. But the thing was largely expanded, double in size, um, possibly given um, some kind of uh, a defensive bank around. We have never really absolutely proved that but uh, it's on the agenda for investigation. And uh, within that, some of the Roman uh, streets were utilized. Um, for example, if you come to York nowadays, you go up the main street, Stonegate, it's called, uh, that leads to the cathedral. That is exactly on the line of the Roman uh, uh, via uh, Praetoria, right up to the uh, middle of the Roman fort. Um, but outside that area, of course, there are new streets that were laid out in the Viking Age, and Coppergate was one of those. And you can see them actually planning this area around what I suspect was a market area. The main street uh, was the one parallel to it, Ooze Gate, that led to the new bridge across the Ooze that the Vikings built. And uh, as it came up the hill to a little the elevated area, it seems there was a sort of market, certainly had a church in it, uh, and Coppergate was on the on the other side, as it were, of that market square. Uh, And within that, uh, all the properties are um, property, property, alleyway, property, property, alleyway, property, property, alleyway. And uh, it seems to be an idea that some brilliant planner in the uh, 10th century uh, came up with to have a very efficient uh, um, bit of uh, townscape. After all, if you've got shops on the street front, but you're living behind. You need an alleyway every two shops to get to it. And all that area of York has this layout. And in fact, most of the rest of York has it too. So uh, we're looking actually at uh, a sort of fossilized uh, town planning scheme of the, of the 10th century when we're looking at the modern plan of those parts of York that were developed in the Viking Age. Uh, so, yeah, probably a defense is certainly um, 
some kind of uh, gateways. Uh, there were kings, of course, in, in Viking York, and they must have had a, a ma- major sort of palace somewhere. In fact, there's a wonderful saga, the Saga of Egil Scala Grimson, that takes place uh, in the uh, palace of Eric Bloodaxe, the King of York at the time. No, historical character we know about. Egil was a great poet. Uh, he'd offended the king. The king was about to behead him, and one of Egil's friends said, Look, go away for the evening. You're not to be allowed to be beheaded at night. Go and write a poem in praise of the king. Came to the palace in the morning, recited the poem, and the king said, can't really behead somebody who can do that. And the poem's still with us. It's called The Head Ransom. <laughs> it would be very nice to find the building in which all that took place. It certainly it? would. Now, is it possible to say what the the people who lived in the Viking city of York were like? I mean, is it possible to to say, you know, what kinds of foods they would have eaten or what they would have worn? Uh, yes. Well, we've got uh, um, food remains in, in quite large quantities from the rubbish pits that they chucked out. Uh, you know, where they chucked out their debris, um, these wet conditions, uh, instead of rotting away, quite a lot of it survives. So, yes, that there is that. Um, we have the, the famous Viking turd. Uh, this is very large. I think the polite word is coprolite. Um, it was um, an, an enormous one, but it was a human one. And uh, we were able to uh, dissect it in the laboratory and find out what that guy had had for breakfast. Um, of course, there are also things like animal bones and bird bones and so forth. Uh, there's, uh, there are the remains of cereals and what have you. So, yes, uh, we have certainly a, a very good notion of scientific commodities that were being used. For example, in the very earliest layers, uh, there were quite a lot of fish uh, of the kind that you get in you know, old Alcuin's fish-rich ooze that flows through flowery plains. Uh, and as the Viking Age goes on and pollution gets into the river, some of the more sensitive species species disappear, and they don't have those uh, um, full or the full range of, of uh, river fish any longer. But they bring in stuff from the coast, forty miles away, uh, lots of oyster shells. We opened the site to the public when we were digging it, and uh, uh, you know we were always hard up for money, or even with the Prince of Wales, we needed more and more money. And there were so many of these oyster shells that perhaps wrongly, I don't know. We sold them for uh, 20p each. Uh, I think we sold about 70,000 of them. Um, there were, I think it was in Britain on Friday nights, we love fish and chips. Uh, I think in the Viking age, they went for oysters. I must have done so many of them. <laughs> wow, that's, that's <laughs> remarkable. Well, Dr. Peter Addyman, thank you so much for joining me today, sir. It's truly been an honor to speak with you, and I've learned a great deal about the Viking history of York. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you.